This is February 21st, 2020, 2021. Uh, we're just uh, a month away from the official beginning of spring. Days continue to lengthen <clears throat> uh, every with every passing day. Length they continue to lengthen as they have for millennia. Uh, but we're still in the grip of this pandemic, even though the numbers are looking better uh, now. We're still, we're all experiencing something the likes of which we have never, none of us have ever experienced before. <clears throat> there was recently an article in uh, The Atlantic, a, re a recent issue of The Atlantic, called, uh, the title is Bring Back the Nervous Breakdown. And the uh, subtitle is, it used to be okay to admit that the world had simply become too much. And this is by a Jerry Useem, or Useem, U-S-E-E-M. <clears throat> and he, uh, first he traces uh, the, the, the origin of the word nervous breakdown. It goes back to uh, the 1930s, um, April 1935 was a nervous month, he says. Unemployment in America stood at 20%. A potential polio vaccine was failing trials. The term Dust Bowl made its first appearance in newsprint. And Fortune magazine introduced its readers to the nervous breakdown. So... The takeaway, the nervous breakdown, he says, was deemed to be as widespread as the common cold and the chiefest source of misery in the modern world. Anyone could be susceptible to it. It could be precipitated by nearly anything, and it prevented one from carrying on the business of normal living. Resolution of the breakdown entailed a timeout ideally at one of the deluxe sanitariums profiled a few pages into this, this book called The Nervous Breakdown. <clears throat> and then the author says, right now we, we can all agree that we're once again living in a nervous time, pandemic, wildfires, indefinite homeschooling, post-election political chaos, TikTok, Feelings of impending collapse have arguably never rested on firmer empirical grounds. But today we no longer have recourse to the culturally sanctioned respite that the nervous breakdown once afforded. And then he goes on, no longer can we take six weeks uh, at a, um, a healing facility, a healing, healing getaway, a sanitarium, and he mentions in the article, I'm just going to pick up a couple threads here. He mentions that some, some very wealthy people, John D. Rockefeller, uh, Jane Adams, and Ma Max Weber all had acknowledged breakdowns uh, 
they found a way to get their rest and reemerge to do their best work. A 1947 headline in the New York Herald Tribune read, Modern World Viewed as Too Much for Man. And then, the author writes, by the mid-60s, the concept was getting pushed to the margins, that is the concept of a nervous breakdown uh, caused by um, unmanageable environmental stress, stress from the outside. That was getting pushed to the margins by the rise of mass market prescription-driven psychiatry. This new field of prescription-driven psychiatry uh, had little use for an affliction like a nervous breakdown that could be treated without the assistance of physicians. A, a, a social uh, and cultural historian of the nervous breakdown at George Mason University, his name is Peter Stern, said, the very general and ill-defined characteristics of the nervous breakdown were its benefits. It played a function we've at least partially lost. You didn't have to visit a psychiatrist or a psychologist to qualify for a nervous breakdown. You didn't need a specific cause. You were allowed to step away from normalcy. The breakdown also signaled a temporary loss of functioning, like a car breaking down. It may be in the shop, sometimes recurrently, but it didn't signal an inherited or permanent state, such as terms like bipolar or ADHD might signal today. The nervous breakdown was not a medical condition, but a sociological one. It implicated a physical problem, your nerves, not a mental one. And it was a one-time event, not a permanent condition. It provided sanction for a pause and reset that could put you back on track. But as psychology eclipsed sociology in the late 20th century, it turned us inward to our personal moods and thoughts and away from the shared economic and social circumstances that produced them. And then the, <clears throat> the author suggests at the end of this short article, uh, this got me thinking that maybe we need to bring back the nervous breakdown to protect the nation's collective reserve of nerve force at a time when it's stretched so thin. Now that then leads me to a second article. This is from the uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine, New York Times Magazine, I guess it's called, of uh, last month, January, January, let me turn the light on, January 24th of this year. where the author, a Kyle Cheka, 
um, talks about the much more contemporary version of people struggling to deal with this enormous stress we're all in, not just the pandemic, but other things. <clears throat> it's a long article. I'll just be reading uh, bits of it. <clears throat> the article is called Into the Void. Even before the pandemic, American culture was embracing nothingness as an antidote for the overload of digital capitalism. But is it a real escape or another trap? <clears throat> and he starts off. In 2019, of course, that's before the pandemic, <clears throat> I developed a habit of indulging in nothingness. Overwhelmed by social media notifications, news headlines, political crises, abnormal weather patterns, and the constant sense of looming cataclysm that was a defining characteristic of that time, even before the world was, in fact, upended by a pandemic, I decided to try out sensory deprivation, a forced total unplugging inside a sealed tank sounded deeply appealing. At the time, the sensory deprivation industry was booming. Like many wellness trends, floating combines tangible physical benefits with nebulous mental ones, pitched to prey upon our collective anxiety. It promises faster muscle recovery, a calmer nervous system, and heightened creativity. All this in exchange for erasing your existence for an hour or two. The shallow Epsom salted water buoys your body like a fishing lure, Bob. Removing the need to think about your corporeal presence at all. Perhaps most important, it's impossible to hold your phone while immersed. That's a good one. And then the, <clears throat> skipping a couple paragraphs here, there are moments when it feels as though the universe is trying to send you a message. The vibration, he's not talking about the, the float tanks now. <clears throat> the vibration of a particular wavelength driving a possibly justified paranoia. Signs, and now it gets into the, the larger theme of the article, signs of a culture-wide quest for self-obliteration appeared everywhere in the time after my first float. I walked by an exercise studio whose sandwich board commanded me to log out, shut down, do yoga. REI marketed a garment that, quote, feels like nothing and that means everything. In a January 2020 column, it's a year ago, about omnipresent noise-canceling headphones and the desire to block out our surroundings with constant sound, 
the Economist, the, the magazine The Economist, argued the shared world is increasingly intolerable. So, back in the, in the 30s and 40s, uh, if you had enough money, then you would respond by <clears throat> maybe by doing one of these uh, these retreats um, at a at a facility the way J.D. Rockefeller did. But now we don't have those, but we have a lot of other ways of withdrawing. He uh, he. He goes on, he gives all kinds of examples to support his perception of a culture-wide quest for self-obliteration. He goes back to a year ago, uh, much of our lives in the outside world that had been so agitating ground to a halt as the first round of coronavirus lockdown hit the United States. Alongside so much tragedy and despair, mass quarantine has represented a final fulfillment of the pursuit of nothingness, particularly for the privileged classes who could adapt to it in such relative comfort, sunk back into the couch cushions of spare country houses, equipped with grocery deliveries, Netflix shows, and live streaming exercise classes. This interregnum has often felt to me like an all-encompassing, full-time session of sensory deprivation. Quarantine has been widely regarded as a radical break in our daily lives and the ways we interact with the world, but in truth, it's simply an overdose of the indulgences that a certain segment of the population was dabbling in already. We're a little like kids caught with a cigarette, forced to smoke a whole pack at once. A little bit more before I start commenting. <clears throat> this obsession with absence, the intentional erasure of self and surroundings, is the apotheosis of what I've come to think of as a culture of negation, a body of cultural output from material goods to entertainment franchises to lifestyle fads that evinces a desire to reject the overstimulation that defines contemporary existence. This retreating, which took hold in the decade before the pandemic, betrays a grim undercurrent a deepening failure of optimism in the possibilities of our future, a disillusionment that COVID and its economic crisis have only intensified. It's as if we want to get rid of everything in advance, including our expectations, so that we won't have anything left to lose. Well, <clears throat> We have to acknowledge that there's very, very good reason to stay in our homes during the pandemic, to uh, socially isolate, you know, for, for, of course, for uh, health reasons. Um, so a lot of that uh, 
makes good sense. Um, of course, again, his point is that this started well before the pandemic, and and I would bet he would suggest that it will go on after um, we reach herd immunity and people are all emerging from our caves. He goes on um, saying that this desire for nothingness, and uh, we'll, we'll soon get to what a different nothingness is from Buddhist no-thingness. This desire for nothingness uh, reaches its most literal manifestation in the sensory deprivation fad, but it can be found in more subtle forms elsewhere. And then he runs through all kinds of examples, uh, certain kinds of succulent plants, um, and ceramics, um, functionalist beige monochrome outfits, the clingy softness of athleisure, athleisure and cashmere sweatpants, and then CBD. He says the uh, um, CBD is like a mental moisturizer. It promises not the blissed THC haze of the stoner, and then he puts in, in parentheses too uncontrolled, too many thoughts, but the psychological equivalent of white noise, dampening anything negative. And then he cites more examples. This, this, <laughs> I think this a lot of work went into this article. Uh, he talks about an endless parade of e-commerce brands promising the last X you'll ever have to buy. Hoodies, water bottles, bookshelves. And then he devotes a whole paragraph to memes. Um, <laughs> he says, the negative spirit of the moment also shows up in memes, the Internet's equivalent of Pompeian graffiti. That is... Graffiti they found uh, from the time of of uh, the the eruption in Pompeii. Preserved signs of the incipient pandemic apocalypse, and artifacts of its wake. <clears throat> he goes back again to a year when the pandemic was was. Uh, just setting in, he says, uh, it brought an era of quarantine consumerism, the feathering of our respective nests to a state of benumbed comfort enabled by essential workers whose lives were valued less than the continued flow of Amazon boxes. He cites a a a, a futurist, as he calls him, a, a, by the name of uh, Venkatesh Rao, um, who prophesied in uh, uh, two years ago. He about he, he described the inclination then, even two years ago, to hole up at home with Netflix binges 
video games and seamless deliveries, that's capital M, seamless, must be a brand, a company, seamless deliveries as domestic cozy, a preemptive retreat from worldly affairs for a generation that quite understandably thinks the public sphere is falling apart. Those are the words of this uh, Rao, Venkatesh Rao. And then <clears throat> this same guy, Rao, he says, the world looks forbiddingly difficult to break into today. More to the point, it increasingly does not seem worth the effort. And then the author here says, soon the public sphere disintegrated anyway. Yeah, through the pandemic. Let's acknowledge that what we are going through is just nearly impossible to manage. I was uh, talking with someone the other day who, who made this point and got me to step back and realize we are in a pandemic, a world pandemic. This last happened a hundred years ago. This is rare. We are, we are so on the ropes, all of us, with our, our inability to join with others in this, all this awful stuff. We can't embrace one another. We can't join and except virtually, of course. Um, we can't see one another except virtually. We can't sit in the Zendo together except virtually, which is a lot better than nothing. If we are spending too much time escaping uh, into these different forms of home entertainment, uh, then let's at least let's at least forgive ourselves for that because it's just a nineteenth-century uh, British cleric or Scottish cleric once said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. He then, he then <clears throat> acknowledges that before the pandemic, the malaise that defined our culture was periodically broken by huge protests acts of physical solidarity. He mentions the women's march that followed the, uh, the election of Trump, um, the mass public outcries against the travel ban, against the border wall, 
against the acquittal of Trump's first impeachment and Kavanaugh's confirmation. And then came the killing of George Floyd and others. He says this communal direct action seemed like a glimpse of the culture of negations hard to find opposite, invigorating and sometimes uncomfortable, but not a distraction or a suppressant. And yet these moments of tumult also inspire retreat, climate change, technological upheaval, racism, inequality, the churn of history, which shows no signs of stopping. These all make it easy to instead slip into the welcoming void of the content stream. Numbness beckons when life is difficult, when problems seem insurmountable, when there is so much to mourn. I'm just going to skip to near the end for a minute and go back near the end of the article uh, where he says micro trends rise and fall daily, but only within the bounds of the digital spaces like TikTok and Twitter where they exist. What stays consistent is the mode of delivery and the sale of your data. Right now, Counterculture glorifies passive numbness, just as corporate structures reinforce and profit from it. Any alternative ideology or stylistic innovation, like those of the hippies and punks of decades past, is instantly integrated into the commercial mainstream by the algorithmic feeds of the enormous social networks that establish mass taste. Boy, what an indictment this is. Positions of resistance are neutralized. Ennui itself is a brand. In December, Pantone announced two colors of the year for 2021. The first was Ultimate Gray. He continues earlier in the article, many opt to simply stay home, pursuing as uncomplicated and swaddled a life as possible, surrounded by things that feel, if not good, then at least neutral. And the same guy, the futurist Rao, he said, it's not pure subtraction of public sensations, it's the addition of private sensation. Hot cocoa, gravity blankets, sensory deprivation. We create an acceptable layer between our internal and external environments, a barrier that's still under our control even as the outside world grows increasingly chaotic. It's an essentially defensive posture, he said, an instinctive, adaptive response. 
But you know what's even more adaptive than any of these things, these very understandable things that so many of us have fallen back on? What's even more adaptable, you know what I'm going to say, is Zazen. This practice. Not just the sitting. That's really the the strict meaning of the word Zazen is the sitting. Uh, but more largely carrying through our lives this um, presence, this uh, um, no-mindedness. A little more he says, and now in a very anxious time, it's even harder to find what doesn't conform. As theaters, art galleries, opera houses, symphonies, cinemas, poetry readings, comedy clubs, and bookstores all evaporated in the pandemic, the last thing left seemed to be streaming video, broadcast through the largely unregulated for-profit digital platforms that now have a monopoly on our house-bound attention and connection. A little later, he says, the culture of negation inspires a taste for nothingness and glorifies numbness. So there's this word, nothingness. Most of you who are listening to this know that this is a, a core concept and experience in Zen uh, called shunyata. Um, it's, uh, there are many ways to understand this. Um, one is no self, empty of self. No thing has any permanent self nature to it. Everything is in flux. Um, things are coming and going so quickly that there's nothing we can hold on to. So this is a way to understand nothingness as, as the... the uh, evanescent nature of existence, of life. Um, the dreamlike quality of life. Because there is, if there's no thing permanent, then there's no thing. No thing we can put our finger on. There's no thing that persists from one moment to the next. But to see nothingness in this, this uh, dead way as just negation, uh, this is seen as a kind of blindness in Zen. When you see it as apart from the world of phenomena, when you see 
negation as apart from affirmation, then it's a fatal mistake. In Zen, we're not retreating from the world. Uh, we're not disengaging from it. We're not withdrawing from it. But we want to see through it. We want to see through this world of appearances. This is, this is absolutely different. It's not sectioning off our experience um, as something apart from the world of coming and going, relating, not apart from connection. Um, when we're, when we're really embodying this practice, we're not benumbed, we're not numb. The further we go into Zen practice, the more, the more open, the more um, sensitive we become to others and their pain and their needs. Um, not reacting to the pain around us. In fact, it's really a state where we, we grow into the a state where our hearts can be broken more easily by others' pain, by loss, by the passing of family and friends and others and, and all of the, the many essential workers who are so exposed to the pandemic and who, who have to go through grieving on a daily basis in the case of medical workers who are embedded in so much dying and other suffering. Always in Zen, we want to beware of getting attached to either side of the coin, either the side of negation or the side of affirmation, the side of death or the side of life. Not clinging to either. We avoid uh, clinging to, to life by learning to let go of our thoughts. When we're when we're sitting no-mindedly, or when we're doing anything no-mindedly. No-mindedly means beyond thought. We're just fully present in the direct experience of activity. Then we become this nothingness, this emptiness. We are it. We are the, the flux. We're, and, 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 and in that, we are... We are our creative forces are working, are, are accessible. 
just a small example, I learned a long, long time ago that I had to uh, sit before giving Taisho at least 45 minutes, uh, even if my uh, organization of, of the topic, my comments uh, were not terribly organized, uh, because it's it's in the sitting that I have the best chance of bringing to life the Teisho, bringing myself to life, same thing. It's by, by sinking into this realm of no mind that we uh, come most alive. And then this word nothingness or emptiness, uh, it, it, rather than escaping, being, being an escape from this world, uh, worldly things even, it, it becomes, uh, it turns into its opposite. It turns inside out. When, 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 we, when the mind is empty, which always remember always means free of thoughts we're most vividly vibrantly present then the so-called emptiness turns into the rich the ultimate richness of of experience people who have been to sashin know this it can of course happen anytime in any sitting in sashin but Consider after consider the the morning after a seven day session when you've had some rest finally. Uh, how's the world look then when the mind is empty? The author uses this term nihilism uh, a couple of times. This of course is um, not what we're aspiring to. Nihilism means there's no no meaning or purpose to life. The feeling that there's no meaning or purpose to life. And that's one way of understanding reality. There doesn't need to be a meaning or a purpose when we're completely one, when we're completely present. We don't need to, uh, to uh, superimpose the notion of meaning or purpose. We don't need it. When we are life itself. And so there, there are various koans that begin where the monk asks, what is the meaning of bodhidharmas coming from the West? Which became a conventional way of asking, what is uh, the ultimate principle? What is, uh, what is, our, what is our essential nature? But look at look at some of the responses. Well, one of them at least, where uh, this is in the Blue Cliff record, where the monk asks, "What is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming to the West?" And uh, the first master says, "Pass me the uh, the cushion, the zazen cushion." And the monk passes it to him, and he swats him. The master swats him with a cushion, uh, and he says, 
After all, there's no meaning to Bodhidharma's coming to the West. Bringing the monk back to this, this, the physical, the direct experience. The author goes through so many more examples, a very persuasive case here of uh, many, many ways and all different aspects of contemporary life that were, were um, slipping away from the real Buddhist mean, meaning of no-thingness. No-thingness no means there's no thing apart from any other thing. It means connection. It means intimacy. But instead, uh, we're just in a tidal wave of consumer products and consumer services that are taking us in the other direction, the disconnection. Is quite, he makes quite an indictment here of, of uh, capitalism and what it's become, especially digital capitalism. In one, one point he says, no one seems to want anything. There is no enthusiasm for desire in this culture, only the wish that we could give it up. It's an almost Buddhist rush toward selflessness with the addition of American competition and our habit of overdose, as much obliteration as possible. In the words of an enormous piece of graffiti I spotted recently in near Philadelphia, make America nothing again. Yes. Yes. Let's go to the, the very source of everything in this world worth, worth living for, which is nothing. This is the, the very ground of everything. When we, to the degree that we, we, we see everything as flux, uh, that is, with neither self or other, any fixed self or other, then we'll be less fearful of any experience, less fearful of the pandemic, less fearful of other political parties. Uh, we'll be less, less need for us to push anything away, reject anything. The less need for us to, to run away, to escape, to avoid. Again, he talks about absence, this kind of yearning, this misguided yearning for absence and distance and disconnection, uh, numbness. This practice that we're doing, the Zen practice, is not about any kind of absence, really, but about a vast presence. And when we can live, to the degree that we can live in this presence that is absence, 
then we have we're from we're, we're in a position a, a position of non-abiding that is ultimate adaptability where we can give we can give to others we can respond this is this is the ultimate position of responsiveness is a non-abiding state we're ready we're poised for what needs to be done recently i uh, had the privilege of delivering a big shopping bag full of notes and cards and letters of appreciation that uh, some of you gathered together. I took them to the hospital. And uh, to me, this is a, this is a sign. This is a, a confirmation of, of this ability to to rest in non-abiding, this, this ability to rest in our, in, in our own impermanence, our flux, um, and which, which then gives, inspires us to respond to those who are suffering. See, the, the, the uh, all fundamental uh, non-dual nature of, of, of wisdom that is wisdom as seeing the essence of wisdom being seeing the, the, the emptiness of everything between that and compassionate response All right, then our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs> 